Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, if you're new here, I'm Josh, one of the pastors. So uh, like Ben said, we are starting a brand new series. Uh, we, we uh, our, our teaching team, which is myself and Ben and, and Sarah and, and Dave, um, kind of plotting a chart for the future, thinking about what, uh, what teaching to infuse into our community, what, what is it that, that we want to be about in this season and, and really want to dive uh, in, deeply into. And the thought of God's presence kept coming back to us. Um, we want to be a people of God's presence. And so I have the, the good fortune of, of being able to, to kickstart that today and talk about what is God's presence, why do we want to be a people of God's presence, and then how, how is it that we do that? And so we have, we'll have a few weeks, I'll, I'll just kind of kick it off, and then we'll have a few weeks going forward um, to take some of the themes that I even bring up and, and then expand on uh, that, uh, the theme of God's presence in some other directions. So... Um, as I was thinking about this, so I was thinking about what it's like to live in God's presence and what it's like to pay attention to him in everyday life. I had this, I had this experience that I, that I want to share. Uh, four summers ago, coming up on four summers ago, uh, my family and I were able to, do, to take a sabbatical during the summer. It took 10 weeks. And two of those weeks, we did a 10-state road trip. Uh, to the Pacific Northwest and back, and it was it was pretty epic. It was it was everything we thought it it could be. We hit uh, several several national parks, like we hit the the Badlands, um, uh, Mount Rushmore, and then up into Yellowstone, and then Crater Lake, Multnomah Mol- Falls, Crater Lake, and then back down into California um, and through Colorado. So a lot of lot of ground covered, a lot of time in the car. Uh, a lot of bonding with our children, but they were really great. They, I was, gosh, how old were you guys? Seven and three then? And so they did fantastic. So anyway, that wasn't the experience, but I just have to give credit to where credit's due. Our kids loved it. We loved it. And we got closer as a family. Uh, but it was that time in, in Yellowstone. I had this on my bucket list that I wanted to go to Yellowstone National Park and camp. And that's what we did. So we found um, something on Hip Camp, which is like Airbnb for campsites. And we camped on this horse ranch. Um, and it was, it was, it was awesome uh, on the um, Wyoming side of, of, of Yellowstone. And uh, a couple days into it, we went to Yellowstone Falls, which um, I, I, have a, I have a picture here. Yellowstone Falls, this is the upper falls of Yellowstone Falls. And um, this is, you can kind of see the, the sulfuric rock that gives Yellowstone its name. Um, but it's just, it's beautiful. This is known as the, the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone because there's just this deep and, and wide gorge that the, the river has cut into the, the landscape. And what you don't see um, is behind this is this big platform for tourists like, like me to stand and gawk at it and take selfies and all, all the things that you do. And it, it's, it's like packed. But this thing, this was just, there's a lot of, like we saw, you know, buffalo coming right up, like just kind of lumbering down the road. It's like you want to touch it, but you don't want to because you're afraid for your life. You know, that sort of, just all kinds of different things. Uh, but it was this in particular that really struck me. And I, in the moment, I, I had a moment in that moment. 
surrounded even by people. And, and our kids, they had, I mean, it was, it was a few miles to hike to get up um, to, to the viewing platform. So their little bodies were given out and their attitudes were shortly falling behind. But in the midst of all that, I, I had this, this experience with God. It, it's sort of one of those moments where like everything else is, is silent and, and you're just kind of locked in into what's going on in front of you. So all these people, I, I sat down on this bench to just take this in, and it was like, you know, people were um, walking back and forth in front of me, and, and kids were jumping up on the benches. And, but it, it was this moment of, oh my God. I've, I feel both insignificant and full of purpose and meaning at the same time. It, it's like God created this, and he created me. And it was no effort for him to do either of those things. And it's just this wonder and amazement, and I felt God's presence in a unique way, uh, a way that was different from like a worship gathering like this or a personal quiet or, or devotional time. It was just this sense of like God's nearness and immenseness at the same time. And all I could do was just sit and take it in. Now, where do we get those feelings? Because if you've, if you've had feelings like that, you, you may or you may not have ever wondered, where does that come from? Where is that sense of awe, that the, the amazing experience of something like needing to be taken in and you being struck silent and in wonder, where does that come from? What explanation do we have for experiences like that? I, I would chalk it up to God's presence. But um, one of the things that, one of the views that our people in our world have today is called exclusive rationality. It's the assumption that only what is quantifiable and provable is true. And I can't prove an experience like that. You kind of have to take my word that it even happened. And I can't prove that I'm having this sense of wonder and awe. Like you, you can't stuff it into the scientific method and output and output, right? So exclusive rationality uh, is what Tim Keller says is the belief that science is the only arbiter of what is real and factual and that we should not believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using empirical observation. The things that we can prove are only the things worthy of being called truth. Everything else one might say or think lies in the realm of unreliable human feeling and opinion. So in that moment at Yellowstone, secular, secularists would say, I'm just having um, an unreliable human feeling and opinion about Yellowstone Falls. But in me, eternally, I was struck quiet. I was having a moment, right? So secular thought doesn't have, in and of itself, the tools to explain concepts that are universal to the human experience, such as the drive for meaning and purpose, defining even what goodness is and the appreciation of beauty. Philosopher Charles Taylor describes this state of being as living from an imminent frame, only seeing what's in front of you, only being able to touch and see and taste it and put it into the scientific uh, method. There's been a disenchantment of our world where once, maybe several hundred years ago, people all over the earth believed in fairies and magic and dragons, but now because of the you know, intellectual progress that made, the, 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 the philosophical arguments that we can make, and just we've gotten better and smarter as a human race, so we've left all that stuff behind us. 
Taylor calls that the disenchantment of our age. And that isn't to say that secular adults in our world don't experience transcendent moments that catch them up in a moment of awe, but we would say they do so in spite of their worldview, not because of it. Tim Keller again in Making Sense of God says this, sometimes one experiences a fullness in which the world suddenly seems to change with meaning, coherence, and beauty that break in through our ordinary sense of being in the world. Some who experience this know unavoidably that there is infinitely more to life than just physical health, wealth, and freedom. There is a depth and wonder to some kind of presence above and beyond ordinary life. It may make us feel quite small and even unimportant before it, and yet also hope-filled and unworried about the things that usually make us anxious. That's exactly what I experienced and, and have several times throughout my life. So for the Christian, for those that believe in another world, that believe in a higher power that we call God, Yahweh, the world is filled with possibility and the inbreaking of God. Instead of simply stamping out desire and longing, we actually pay attention to those things that are going on. And yes, we submit them to the greater good of our design and meaning and purpose, we, but we pay attention to what our desires are saying in hopes of knowing that God will satisfy them in him. C.S. Lewis, many of you have heard this quote. This is nothing new, but I think it's just so appropriate for us. It says in mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And here's why I challenge the secular narrative so often. The world around us, our culture around us, tells us that we're only animals prone to express our base nature. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is the refrain. All that there is is the here and now. But then we're so offended when we actually act. Like you, The things that go on in our world today that we're so upset about, like, how can we be so upset when people express what we're teaching them? You're just animals. You're just acting that way. And then they act like animals, and we think, my God, what is wrong with people? They're just, they're, they're just rising to the base level of what we've taught them that they are. Not we as the church, but our culture, right? But we would say, no. The Scriptures proclaim that you're not just a glob of animated cells, You're not just the the highest of the animal order, and that's all that you are, and you're just socially conditioned to act a certain way for selfish means and selfish gain. The Christian scripture says that you've been created by God. You've been, been created for a purpose, for love, for relationship, to glorify him. So Christians say that this isn't all that there is, and it's actually absolutely appropriate and should be expected for you to have these transcendent moments where you're caught up in awe because it's a sign and a signal to us that God is near and he's close and he wants more for us and with us. So the Genesis narrative, as we dig into that today, is going to tell us as much. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I'm going to read from this. You can follow along if you want. In the beginning, the earth was, was void and formless and empty. And over the course of five days of creation, God spoke things into being. The world exploded with light 
and life and conditions that could su- support the relationship that God wants to have with his creation. And then on the sixth day, he created us. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit, the seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and then there was morning the sixth day. So scripture here, now sometimes there's two maybe viewpoints on how to view um, Genesis. Either it's a, it's a literal, like we need to know that the earth was created in six literal days and Adam and Eve were literal people in a literal garden. And then on the other side, it's, it's like this is metaphor, it's, it's written as poetry, and so Adam and Eve probably weren't real and the six days of creation were not probably literally six days and, and I really think we're, we're trying to build a church community where you can land in different places along that spectrum and we can worship God together. Because my encouragement here today is not to get into that debate. So whether you're thinking, okay, he needs to tell me about Adam and Eve so I can listen to him, otherwise I'm going to check out the rest of the message. Like, don't do that. Because what we do when we do that, when there's a certain kind of shibboleth or there's a certain kind of like agreement we have to have, um, we miss the plot for the characters sometimes. And there's a plot here that whether you believe or not in Adam and Eve and who they were and what they did, there's a plot of creation that God is trying to teach us. And Adam and Eve, specifically in this section, are more archetypal for us to view this wasn't just something that God did for them and told them to do certain things, but it's for all of humanity. They're archetypes for us to follow in, and that is the plot. We're created for a relationship, and we have a partnership together with God for meaning and purpose and our relationship. Okay? Are we good? So basically, I didn't answer any of what you're wanting to know, but we're going to move on. So it continues in Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So Adam was created in this untamed wilderness and placed in the garden, a place of perfect peace, harmony, and tranquility where God's presence abided, rested, right? Eve was then created from Adam, and through their partnership, God gave them a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, okay? So notice, these are two different kinds of dimension. There, there exist two different dimensions of this mandate. First, to have them multiply means for them to have offspring that fills the earth, And then secondly, to have them bear fruit means for them to subdue their wilderness and take the conditions of the garden and push its boundaries outward. Because remember, Eden is is the the idyllic situation. There's still wilderness out among uh, the rest of the earth. So the mandate includes that as 
Adam tends it as, as Eve tends it. They're going to push the boundaries of Eden so that Eden expands all over the planet, okay? And as they are fruitful and multiply, there will be cities and nations and societies that reflect the culture of Eden, which really is heaven on earth. That was the plan. They were to tend the garden while facing the problems of the untamed wilderness until heaven's presence was manifest worldwide. Part of this mandate is to terraform the land so that literally everywhere becomes heaven on earth and the glory of the Lord fills it all. So John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, says this, When we consider the Garden of Eden in its ancient context, we find that it is more sacred space than green space. It is the center of order, not perfection, and its significance has more to do with divine presence than human paradise. In the textual description, it features rivers that bring fertility and an arboretum of sorts. This park-like environment is well-known in the ancient world. The motif of flowing rivers, forest common, is connected to sacred space early and often. Gardens were constructed adjoining sacred space as evidence of the fertility that resulted from the presence of God. They were not vegetable gardens or fields of crops. They were beautifully landscaped parks. They provided fruit that was offered to the God. Kings also built gardens adjoining their own palaces where they would receive and impress visitors. Thus, the text of Genesis can be seen to describe a garden, a park landscaped with exotic trees and stocked with wildlife. These were common accoutrements to temples and palaces in the ancient world. Okay, so Eden is a place marked by God's presence. And Adam and Eve were to partner with God so that his presence would be pushed out along with Eden all over the world. So we see in Eden the original design for the connection between God and humanity. There would be a divine order filled with divine presence welcoming us to relate to God face to face. In Eden, though we are not visitors to impress, but co-participants of that ordering fueled by mutual delight. Again, this partnership was to make, us, make all of the earth like Eden, but we know what happened. Sin disrupted this plan. Israel then was later formed through covenant uh, as a worshiping nation, and at its center was a new focus on God's presence in the Jerusalem temple. Yet Israel failed on our mission to be a blessing to the nations. But Jesus' death opened the way to God's spirit to dwell on earth again in the way that he really wanted to, the, the, the way that God designed it. But in a significant plot twist, God's presence wouldn't be housed in a box, in a building, but in each of his followers. And his presence in us reorders everything from the inside then to the outside. Redemption restores our original design where we partner with God to cultivate Eden in the spheres we find ourselves. As we become renewed and reordered, the places where God has us are affected significantly. Nancy Percy in Total Truth says this, Redemption is not just about being saved from the consequences of sin. It is also about being saved to something, to resume the task for which we were originally created. And what was that task? In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world, build families, churches, cities, governments, laws, the second phrase, subdues the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures and to build civilizations, nothing less. So, the big picture, the big idea. 
that, that uh, impacts us in the here and now. So in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God's presence would, was concentrated just in one place, in the Jerusalem temple, or in the, in the tabernacle, and then later in the Jerusalem temple. So if you wanted to be in God's presence, you had to go to Jerusalem. In fact, when you open the book of Psalms, there are Psalms of Ascent. The first song that we, we sang today sang about this is a song of ascent. It's because the Jerusalem temple existed on a mountaintop. And literally, when you made a pilgrimage, you were going up a mountain, up hills. And they would sing these songs of ascent, preparing themselves to meet with God. The presence of God existed at one place at that time. And God's power rested on specific people, usually men in that cultural order, for only a, a, a brief period of time for specific tasks. And what Jesus has done is to reorder and renew everything so that God's presence now lives, not in a house, in a box, but in his followers. And his power rests on every one of us to do the task to which he has called us as his church. This is so unusual. Nobody saw it coming. There were hints of it all throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus changed everything for us, literally, where you had to go see the one guy who was anointed by the Spirit or go to the one place to worship God. Now, he's everywhere in all of us as he empowers us for our mission. Okay, so let's now talk about a few distinctives we can make when it comes to understanding God's presence. First, Christian doctrine declares that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. So we have to acknowledge that. There is no place in all of creation that God does not exist. God is in the tree. God is not the tree. God is in the sky. God is not the sky, right? He's everywhere. In fact, David in the Psalms said that if I make my bed in Sheol, certainly you were there. God ex extends his presence even to the depths in this everywhere all at once sort of way, okay? So we know God is in all and through all. And yet, in the scripture and, and even in our own experience at times, we see God manifest himself in unprecedented, unusual ways, such as when Solomon dedicated the first temple in Jerusalem. God showed up. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 2. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Uh, and, and that word filled is like it filled it, but it overflowed it. It filled it, but the temple could not contain, right? The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. So we could say God was already in the temple through his omnipresence. And we can also say God showed up and filled it more with his presence. It may be so that, that some of us say we should ask to, to be made more aware of God's presence. God is already here, so the prayer is, God, make me aware of your presence, or thank you for your presence. And that's true. And then some of us may say, well, we can also pray, God, increase your presence, or God, send your presence. All of those statements are factually accurate. Thank you for your presence, God. God, please send more of your presence. Because there's omnipresence and, there, and there's tangible or manifest presence where God is, shows up, but he shows up more, okay? So, are we good there? Hopefully that kind of like 
heads off some arguments about like where God is and where he's not, where he should be and where he could be. Okay? It's just like, thanks for your presence, God, I need more of it. That's a legit prayer that covers all the bases. Okay? So why do we want God's presence though? Why do we want to position ourselves to be a people of God's presence? And that first reason, the, the best reason I can think of is simply joy. It's the, the joy that it brings. I, I believe that those of us that, I mean, we're just in this chronically anxious age where people are medicating and they're numbing and they're dulling and they're binging. And I really do believe that the Lord's presence, it may not solve all the problems, but I do know there's no problems when I'm in God's presence. Psalm 16 verse 11 says this. I'm going to read out of the New King James. You will show me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy. I mean, there are some days, some days more than others, where I could use some fullness of joy. And what I need is to not eat my feelings or do some retail therapy. I mean, lifting weights or doing yoga is always a good thing. But what I really need is I need to be in God's presence. There is fullness of joy. There is peace. There is comfort. There is, there is joy. What does that feel like, right? That, the, some of the questions is, like, if you have maybe never, not grown up in a church that talks about God's presence, wanting God's presence, sometimes we just kind of need to name the effects of God's presence. Well, we saw in, in Second Chronicles, like, when God shows up, sometimes everything stops. The priests can't offer their worship. The ushers can't, you know, ush. The, the, the people can't do... What they're doing because God shows up and says, I'll take over from here, thank you very much. It's interesting that Israel gathered around God's presence, but in the Protestant tradition, we tend to gather around the Bible. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Everything in our services, if you look at most Protestant services, it's all the crescendo is the preached word. And, and I'm all about that, and at the same time, I wonder if we miss something. Because I could, miss, I could preach a, a message and I could quote you know, an adequate amount of scripture and I could make some points and someone could go, hmm, that sounds really interesting. And we, we could maybe miss God's presence. And I, and I would say we don't have to pick and choose which one we want. We want the word, but we want the word to lead us to God's presence. So if there are times in the preaching where halfway through you go, oh my gosh, I'm just, I feel this peace, I feel this comfort, I feel this joy, and I didn't catch the rest of Josh's message, I'm totally okay with that. You got the important part. It led you to Jesus. That's the whole point, right? So what is that, what is it, it, it may feel like you're, you're in a moment with God, and uh, there's peace, there's, there's like a rest that washes over you, a comfort that washes over you. There are these, what, uh, I've, I, came to faith in a more charismatic um, um, expression of, of Christianity. So I'm, com I'm comfortable talking about these things, but this, this may feel a little weird that I, that I name what the Holy Spirit does. I, just hang with me a bit, because what we, see, what we see in Pentecost is the Holy Spirit is poured out. We see wind, we see fire, and we see, we see wine. So we see the wine. They, they're so full of joy and overflowing with gladness that people think they're drunk. Um, now, I'm not saying we all need to like act like that, but there will be this like inexplicable joy that you will feel when God's presence shows up. Sometimes. 
There, there may be, I've experienced it where I feel this wind. That it's this gentle, almost internal, like the Holy Spirit kind of shows up. And, and it's beyond tingles and feelings. It's like there's a breeze. Uh, I've, I've even felt heat, like in my hands specifically, or like my ears, or even in my head. Like, like there's a heat that, that happens as sort of a tangible way the Holy Spirit can, can manifest. Sometimes I don't actually feel anything because that's the thing about the Holy Spirit is you can't control him and you can't tell him when or how to show up. All you can do is say, I am here and I want more, please, and thank you, right? So I'm just, I'm just mentioning those not to like, not to set myself apart as anything special or whatever. Most of the time it's like nothing and some peace, but sometimes, if you're in, a, especially in worship or you're in uh, private devotion and you feel that happen, all you need to do is pause and acknowledge. Like, I, okay, Holy Spirit, I think you're here. I think your presence just increased. And that's all, the, all that it takes, like turning your attention from what you're doing onto him, okay? So we want presence because God really does bring peace and joy and comfort with him. And then secondly, there's a friendship with the Holy Spirit that can be cultivated. Genesis 1 and 2 teach us that we were made for relationship. We were made in context and for relationship. And I don't believe that Jesus went to the cross so that God could sit on the throne distant and far away from us. I do believe the presence is the nearness of God, affirming his covenant and, and, and affirming his relationship to us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, this is the very last verse. This is kind of like an in greeting Paul is writing to some of his friends. He says this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, I love this because this is a Trinitarian prayer. Each member of the Godhead gets mentioned in this blessing. But I, I love this because he mentions this phrase that I, there's, it's nowhere else in the Scripture the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that has, that has mystified me for years. What is, because you could, instead of fellowship, you can put the word friendship. May the friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know, can, you can actually cultivate friendship with God. You can cultivate a, an awareness of God's presence through his spirit, through friendship, relationship to his spirit. And so sometimes I'll just I'll pray this prayer. Like this is a prayer from the New Testament. It's fair game. It may seem like a canned prayer, but an apostle anointed by the Spirit wrote it. So as far as I know, that prayer is for me, and I'm just sharing it with you all too. But I will sit and I will, I will pray, Holy Spirit, I want to be your friend. You, you said you want to be friends with me. Let's be friends. Let's, let's take our relationship, our, our friendship deeper. And friends hang out together. Friends spend time together. And so that, that leads into another practical step. How do we practically prioritize God's presence? First, it takes time and intentionality. Relationships take time, don't they? And it takes attention, giving your attention to another person to cultivate a friendship. We can't seek God's presence on the run. Especially, I, I would, let, me, let me adjust that. Especially in the beginning, it's, it's near impossible to get friendship with God on the run. Just like any other friendship that you have, it takes face-to-face -face time getting to know each other. 
And if you try and do this on the run, you won't get it as deeply as God wants to give it to you. Okay? So that intentional time uh, means that we, we change how we spend our time and attention. It means actually like time with God and asking to cultivate this friendship will show up in our schedule. That our, our quiet time, you know, a lot of quiet times for me seem like, well, I read this scripture and I journaled and I checked all my boxes, now I'm on to the next thing. No, actual friendship with God means when he shows up, I set what I'm doing aside and I talk to him and I spend time with him. That's the intentionality of any other kind of relationship that we have that's meaningful to us. It's actually, it means that I am willing to give something up that brings me comfort or brings me, you know, whatever to get more of what God wants to offer me, okay? And then secondly, we exercise patience. We're intentional and we're patient because building a friendship takes time. In our microwave world, we're going to be super surprised if we think we can cultivate a friendship with a spirit where we're increasingly aware of his presence. If we think we can hit a button and 30 seconds later the, beat, the timer's gonna go off and all of a sudden we have God's presence surrounding us. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And it actually takes patience. Like some friendships, some friendships, let, let's be honest. Like, well, I'll be, I'll be honest with you about some of, some of my interactions with my wife as we were getting to know each other, they were awkward. She'll tell you this one story. I, I used to work at a, a grocery store. I, I managed when we had video departments. Guys, Gen, Gen Zers, their a video department is like Netflix with physical objects. It's like a library with movies. If you didn't know, okay? I managed one of those things, so I was really in touch. Uh, but anyway, she showed up, and I was like, I don't know what I was doing, some weird headspace. And she's like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, hey, what's up? And she, like, she's like, I walked away thinking you were so weird and couldn't talk normally to anybody. Like, it was just like, why are you so awkward, dude? And then she fell in love with me, so it worked. So there you go. But anyway, some of those moments with the Holy Spirit, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be weird and awkward and like, man, am I doing it right? I don't even know how to talk to God or like the language I used to use to talk to God. It just seems like so stupid. And I'm talking to the ceiling now you're going to have to work through those times. I actually remember about that same time that I, I met Sarah, um, I, I just, I knew, I had a growing hunger for more of God's presence. And I didn't really have anybody around to teach me. Like I read some books, I, I didn't have anybody. I, this may sound super selfish, which when you're in your mid-20s and you're, you know, your prefrontal cortex as a dude isn't fully formed. Like you are kind of selfish and you don't, don't know what you're thinking fully. But I just didn't really see anybody around that I'm like, yeah, they're really drenched in God's presence and I want to know, like, I just kind of had to make it up as I went. So I would go home, like late at night, 9, 10 o'clock, uh, be at home, and I would sit with my Bible and I would light a candle and I would just sit and wait and, and say, God, send your presence. And I was so bored out of my mind, guys. Like I knew, I just knew like, okay, I've read saints in history, church history, right? Not just Catholic people, but like people that walk closely with God. And I'm like, I knew they, I know they did this. I don't know if they did it like this, but they just, they like prayed and, and God sh showed up sometimes. So I'm like, I'm going to do it until he shows up. And so I'd light this candle because it just seemed more spiritual if you like light a candle or something, something's flickering there. It's like, I don't know. But I'm in my room, door shut, like Jesus said, right? Got my candle on, got my Bible open. 
And you know, the next morning when I wake up, I'm like, oh crap, I messed it up. I fell asleep during my prayer time. I'd be like, okay, I'm doing it again. I gotta figure this thing out. And I would just, I mean, it was several weeks, maybe month plus in a row of just going, I'm just, I'm gonna do this. Cause I, I have, I, I don't know what else to do. And I can't tell you in the moment that I had these like third heaven, you know, caught up with the angel sort. No, it was mostly like, are you there, God? I'm doing what you told me to do. Where are you at? I showed up on time. All right, I was five minutes late because I got a drink, but I showed up on time. Where are you at? And yet, there's this principle in the kingdom of, of sowing and reaping, right? Where what you sow in after some kind of time, you reap that. So it wasn't necessarily during that month of pressing into God's presence. But even today, when I, when I sit with Jesus and I, and I talk with him, when I ask him to increase those, his presence still, that's still a prayer that I, that I, that I pray regularly, it's like the, there are these moments where I have a, a, flat, a memory flashback to that moment. And it's as if, it's as if Jesus is just whispering to me and going, hey, remember when we sat here with each other? I don't know how to explain it, but there are these moments where it just pops into my memory. I was so bored out of my mind, I can't even like describe it. I'm, I'm really underselling this, I know. But it's as if Jesus holds those moments as precious and will remind me, hey, remember when we did that together? and you didn't know any better, and the hunger in your heart, that's what I responded to. I, sh I was there. You didn't know it. I was there. And in these months, you know, and years, and, and decade plus later, there's this memory of like, I want to get back to the simplicity of that. Like Jesus, I think, really enjoyed that. I did not enjoy it, but I think I enjoy it now being a little older and being a little wiser and knowing a little bit better how the, this kingdom stuff works, I want to pay attention to what Jesus is paying attention to and what he is treasuring in his heart. I, I want more of that, those moments in time. So I know there's I, we have just kind of a spectrum of people. I'm going to kind of wind it down here now. You might be thinking a couple things. You might be thinking, oh my God, we're not going to be that kind of church, are we? Like, that is just so mystical and spiritual and like, you know, somebody's got to take out the trash around here because I know all these super spiritual people, they never get around to doing their taxes. They're just so caught up in God all the time. And someone's got to be a, the concrete practical type around here. And I get it. So to maybe answer a question, I don't know what kind of church that is, all I know is I want us to be a people of, of the presence and let God figure out some of those details about the stretch that we feel, about the discomfort or awkwardness that we feel. I want God more than anything else. I want God better. I mean, the music today was fantastic. Sarah's not here to hear me brag on her, but I thought that Ain't No Grave song was like, I felt that in my soul. Um, so you tell her later, I told her about that. Anyway, But more than that, more than I want to see my wife and my friends like nail a song. I want to be soaked in God's presence. And if that makes me a weird Christian, so be it. Okay? But I don't think it will. I, I think we are trying to find this tension. Like I'll never be able to demystify God's presence totally for us. 
Because there is a mystical experience that happens. It's God's spirit. But also, we we don't want to shut our brains off. God has given us the gift of wisdom to understand things in this world. We don't want to be so, you know, detached that we're no practical good to anything. So that being said, you might also think, wow, that sounds great, but you don't know my life. I think that's probably for really spiritual people that have things figured out. And I can just tell you, when I was 25, I did not have things figured out. Thank you very much. So do not disqualify yourself from encountering God because of X, Y, Z reason. In fact, it may be encountering God's presence is what you need to tackle whatever it is that you need to overcome, okay? So with that, you never know. You never know where God might show up and do something unusual. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who is probably best known as a mathematician and inventor and philosopher, he with his uh, I think therefore I am kickstarted in many ways the enlightenment age but what people don't know about him a lot is that he was a radically devoted follower of Jesus he was just sold out to God and in his his latter age after he passed away they found in his jacket sewed into it a note that said this he had some kind of like experience with God that marked him it said this the year of grace 1654 monday 23 november from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the means taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul, Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. We, it was such a precious moment. That's all we know about it. He didn't journal it. He didn't talk about it, but it marked him the rest of his days. Now, again, I can't promise anybody that, but I, would, I know what I know, and that is that I'm going after that Joy, 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 tears of joy. I need more of that in my life. So why don't you stand with me? Here's what, and I have the worship team, come on up. Here's your, your, your next step. I always like to give a practice. So this isn't just like abstract information. Although this feels really abstract. There is a partnership in the spirit that God is inviting us all into. And here's what I would encourage you to just do practically. So this week, Take moments throughout your day to pause and welcome the presence of God's Spirit in your life. You could be doing dishes, you could be mowing the lawn, you could be taking your kids or waiting for your kids in the pickup line. Take moments throughout your day where you just turn your attention to God's Spirit and invite Him in a greater way, okay? Super simple, super accessible, no matter where you're coming from, okay? And so what I'd like to do, I'm gonna have the worship team just kind of play some chords I don't want to rush. I don't want to like preach on God's presence and then go, okay, more donuts, let's go. Like, we'll get to that, right? I just want to take a moment and invite him here in a greater way. So if you would bow your heads with me, allow me to do that, okay? If you're at home, just you know, get comfortable, find a place where you can engage. So Jesus, we're here. We're here. We're the ones you have created the ones you have set your love upon. 
And God, we ask that you would increase your manifest presence in our midst right now, God. We welcome you to come, Holy Spirit. It might help if you, you can put your hands out in front of you if you'd like, whatever feels okay and natural, but as if, as if you're receiving a gift. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to bring your presence. We thank you for your presence. And we ask for more. And we ask for peace and comfort and rest. for grace to turn our focus and our attention to you this week. God, would you meet us in those moments where we turn our face towards yours? Jesus, we love you. We ask that you would help us love you more. We pray in your name. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.